The time is now. Volume 2, Episode 30. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt. You know, one of the great things about this podcast is that clients and contacts and friends from really around the country not only have been giving such great feedback on this podcast, um, but they've also asked me about issues that are important to their particular company what's going on in their industry, things that are maybe unique to them, but also of general applicability uh, to their organization and to other organizations like theirs. As we continue to bring you new episodes in this podcast, I'm going to try to address some of those questions and some of those issues that you may be struggling with, or maybe you just need to hear some answers to reassure that you're doing things the right way. Well, today is one of those episodes. The wage and hour world uh, within labor and employment law continues to be such a huge one. And I wanted to pick three really big questions within wage and hour um, that I've been hearing a lot about, hearing from people that they're struggling with, that these are concepts that may seem simple on their face, um, but have uh, a little bit more to them. The three issues that I want to talk about today, and I'm going to be bringing in a very special guest to help me address these questions. The three questions that I want to talk about today are number one, what is an employee's regular rate of pay? Wow, that's exciting, right? Well, it is important because when you're figuring out whether to pay an employee who works overtime what their overtime rate needs to be, you need to first figure out what their regular rate of pay is. Some folks think that all it is is it's just their hourly wage, $9 an hour, $10 an hour. Or if it's their salary, you divide their salary by the number of hours that they work. Well, like everything else, it's not that easy. There are other parts of compensation, other things that need to be added to the calculus in order to determine what an employee's baseline regular rate of pay is. So how do you do that? What are the pitfalls if you do it wrong? That's question number one. Question number two, there are all different ways of compensating individuals. The fluctuating work week is a term that we've heard a lot about over the years. What does it actually mean? How do you compensate somebody by the fluctuating work week method? And is it something that your company wants to think about as a way of compensating your employees? Is it something that would be helpful to you as a company? Thirdly, Um, Not only are we going to be talking about what we think is going on with the overtime rules, I mean, blah, 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 we've been talking about hearing about the new overtime rules and the Obama DOL and the new Trump DOL and it's in the court system. Well, are we going to finally get some finality to that and what's going to happen with the overtime rules? Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit, but in answering question number three, we've also been hearing a lot going on recently about tip pooling 
tip credits, tip pools, what can employers, and this really affects those, I guess, in the hospitality, the restaurant industry, um, but those who engage in tipping-related practices, what is the Department of Labor doing these days with regard to tip pooling and what you can and can't do? And what about the trend that we've been hearing about where some companies are getting rid of tipping altogether? They're not allowing their customers to tip the employees. Is that a trend that we're going to see continue? So these are three real important questions in the wage and hour world. And because they're so important, I'm bringing in one of my partners here at Cozen O'Connor to uh, walk us through some of this with me. Susan Eisenberg is a partner of mine. She is in our Miami, Florida office. She has been doing this uh, for more than a quarter of a century. Um, I hate to say that because uh, she feels like I'm dating her when uh, I do say that, but she's been doing this a long time and she's real good at what she does. She's got extensive experience, not only in employment law generally, but certainly in the wage and hour field. She is actually one of the authors of the premier treatise titled the Fair Labor Standards Act, which obviously delves uh, very heavily into the wage and hour world. And she is going to join me right now to answer these three big questions that we're going to talk about today. So here's Susan. Susan, I am so happy to have you here as our guest today. I'm thrilled to be here. Are you really thrilled to be here? You just I saying that? I really am thrilled to be here. You have no idea. Well, because everybody that I've had on this has said that they are thrilled or they're happy and all that, and I actually wonder if they're just saying that or not. I love the opportunity to talk to a captive audience. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and uh, I know I have told you that there actually is an audience with this podcast, so uh, uh, you know we're not talking to anybody in particular except each other at the moment. Hopefully there is an audience out there. Um, so anyway, tell us a little bit about what the nature of your practice is. Um, we're doing this in New York because you are up here uh, for uh, some business issues, um, but you practice down in Florida. What's the nature of your practice? Sure. Well, my residence is in Florida, but I really practice pretty much nationally, and it is everything having to do with labor and employment. Um, and I kind of divide the practice into two components. I think one component is the compliance side. So we really try and keep our clients in compliance with the laws um, by you know, looking at their systems and their procedures and doing audits and writing handbooks, that kind of thing. And of course, I get the proverbial call um, every at least once a day about, you know, we need to fire somebody or somebody's out on FMLA, what do we do, how do we bring them back, do we have to accommodate them, that kind of thing. And then I think the vast majority is the litigation side, um, and we do handle a lot of litigation in South Florida in particular, um, and what we're seeing the most at this point are, are the wage and hour claims. Um, we have a disproportionate amount um, of the wage and hour claims filed uh, in, in federal court um, in both the Middle District and Southern District of Florida, and it's disproportionate to the number um, of people we actually have in the labor force in, in South Florida. Not sure why that is, could be in a very active plaintiff's bar, but that takes up a lot of our time. Yeah, and, and there were years when this whole wave of wage and hour stuff started where we thought, well, who knows how long this is going to last, there are interesting cases and, and all of that, but here we are in 2018 and wage and hour our issues um, across a lot of fronts uh, are really taking up a lot of our time as lawyers. 
Well, it's taking up a lot of time both on the compliance side and the litigation side um, because it happens to be a very lucrative area for the plaintiff's bar. And of course, I do all defense work, but um, they see it as low-hanging fruit. It's easy pickings for them, um, and they make a lot of money at it. So I don't think it's going to let up anytime soon. And so I think from the employer side, from the company side, this is also that area which leads to a lot of confusion still. There are a lot of myths out out there uh, when it comes to wage and hour issues. Why do you think that wage and hour seems to be, to most people uh, on the corporate side, to be so much more complicated for these companies than other employment law areas such as discrimination, harassment, non-competes? What is it about the wage and hour arena? Well, I think it is, first of all, far more complicated than the discrimination and partly because, you know, remember we're dealing with a statute that was passed in the late 1930s. Uh, it's got very archaic language. Um, the statute doesn't really tell you everything you need to know. You need to look at the regulations. You need to look at the, you know, at, at the case law and it really is a gotcha statute. So if the employer does not cross their T's and dot their I's and do it perfectly, the plaintiff's counsel's gotcha and and it brings some um, you know and it can bring damages as opposed to you know, the discrimination side I think everybody understands thou shalt not discriminate because someone's a member of a protected class um, this is far far more complicated uh, because of all the different ways that you can pay people um, what types of income they have whether they're exempt or not how to calculate the overtime um, and it really is just a different you know you're walking through a minefield every day with it. Yeah, even though you can have the, the class actions and collective actions in some cases uh, in the discrimination world, the wage and hour uh, side of things really lends itself much more to those types of uh, actions procedurally, which, you know, again, increases the potential exposure to companies exponentially. Well, and also because the bar is so much lower in order to get a collective action than it is on a, on a class action, um, and most of the judges have never met a claim that they didn't think could be a collective action. So it, it escalates very quickly in, in the wage now. Yeah, and you have, and as you said, I mean, most people know thou shall not discriminate. And as you pointed out, you have the FLSA, the primary, at least federal um, wage and hour statute from the late 1930s. But here we are in 2018, we have technology and right. a much different workforce, a much different workplace, and right. certainly a law that's being applied to different um, or attempted to be applied to different types of employees now than what were contemplated back in the 1930s. No, it was never contemplated in the 1930s. The, the vast majority of the workforce has changed. I mean, look at the 1930s was really all, the vast majority was manufacturing. And that's where it, that's where it came up. But now you've got you know, tech-savvy employees. You've got employees working remotely. You've got- Retail managers. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, we could spend hours, if days. not days and weeks, <laughs> probably talking about all kinds of great wage and hour issues. Um, and, you know, beyond uh, this episode, we'll probably talk some more about other kinds of wage and hour issues because there is so much to talk about. Happy um, to come back anytime. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, what I really want to talk about this time uh, are three questions, three issues that I hear from clients all the time. It's causing them all kinds of angst um, in the wage and hour arena. Um, maybe some folks who are listening to this aren't as aware of the issues, and if they are, maybe they're not as aware of where they might be going wrong or how they could uh, potentially 
to do things better. But I wanted to focus this time on three wage and hour issues uh, to talk about. The first one is the calculation of an employee's regular rate of pay in order to then determine what the employee's overtime rate is. It, it seems easy uh, at the first glance. You have somebody's hourly rate. They're making $9 an hour, $10 an hour. Then you multiply that by time and a half, one and a half times that rate, and you get to their overtime rate. Most people out there, I think, know that if you are a non-exempt employee, you are paid one and a half times your regular rate for hours worked over 40 in a work week. That's simple. It's still amazing to me that, that we still run afoul of that at uh, so many places. But that should be simple. Where employers, I think, are getting into trouble is when they're neglecting to add certain things in their calculation of what is the regular rate right. that we then use to multiply by time and a half. Well, this is a perfect example of why this statute is so difficult. The, the biggest misconception is that the overtime rate is one and a half times the hourly rate. And it's not. It's one and a half times the regular rate. And what the regular rate is, it includes everything that the employee is, is paid. And that's where employers are making the mistake. They think if you're making $10 an hour, overtime rate's $15 an hour, and we're done. Um, and they're not including the bonuses or the commissions or, or other things that, that need to get put into add, or added to the hourly rate to get to the regular rate. So let's go to the general concept and then maybe go back to a little bit of the weeds to, to help some of the listeners. Is there a general rule of thumb at all as to how employers should know what they need to include in the calculation of an employee's regular rate? Sure. I mean, the general rule of thumb is everything gets included with some very narrow exceptions. Um, one is where the additional payment is discretionary. And by the way, discretionary means discretionary. Discretionary means that, you know, the head of the department wakes up that morning and says, gee, the sun is shining. I want to give everybody 50 bucks today. That's discretionary. Um, where the employers make a mistake is, is they think that because they um, decide to put a program in place, which they can then withdraw at any time, that all of a sudden the bonus is discretionary, and it's, and it's really not. So um, the rule of thumb is, on bonuses is it, if there is a formula or if there is a matrix or if the employee hits certain data points, they're entitled to a bonus, it's not discretionary. They hit those data points, they get the bonus. They don't hit them they don't. So there's nothing really discretionary about it. So it, you know, it does have to be included. And so specifically then in terms of how that works. So if we've reached the, uh, the point where we say, all right, there is not a discretionary bonus and the bonus that the employee is getting or has gotten needs to be included in these calculations, what are we actually telling the company? What does the company have sure. to do? in terms of including the bonus in, in the regular, well, uh, regular rate of pay calculation. Yeah, and this becomes extraordinarily complicated because oftentimes bonuses are not paid on a weekly basis. Right. And, and, and that's why it becomes so difficult. So for instance, if you pay your employees or, or they, they have a, a rate that they're paid hourly and at the end of the week they make X, but at the end of the month, you're giving something like an attendance bonus, for instance, and it covers the month, then you really have to go back and allocate that bonus over the number of weeks it covers and add it to the hourly rate, divide it by the number of hours worked to see what the differential is. And it sounds complicated, 
And it, once you get the formula set up, it's really not complicated, but you do have to include that bonus into the regular rate, otherwise you're underpaying the overtime premium. And when do you have to make that calculation? Well, there is a, a provision in the regulations that talks about deferred compensation. So if the compensation is deferred, so for instance, you pay it at the end of the month or you pay it at the end of the quarter or the end of a six-month period, then when you pay it, you, you don't have to take it into consideration until it's paid. But once it's paid, you have to then look back and recalculate the overtime rate um, over the time period in which the bonus w was meant to cover. And it really only affects overtime weeks. I mean, it doesn't affect if the employee's not working overtime. What do you mean by that? Well. So, for instance, if you pay somebody a bonus and they're working 35 hours a week, then you pay them a bonus. You don't have to go back and recalculate anything. It's only in those weeks that they've actually worked the overtime that the overtime rate has to be recalculated. Right, because keeping in mind what we're talking about at the, in the first instance, how to figure out the overtime rate. That's right. And you only have to do that if they're working overtime in the particular week. That's right. So, none of this, so all of this, when we're talking about figuring out the regular rate of pay to get to the overtime rate only matters if they're ultimately working overtime. Right. So there, and then there are some exceptions to that. Like there is some um, support for the fact that, like for instance, referral bonuses don't have to be put into the regular rate because it's not tied to your job duties. Um, and, and so there is a, a Department of Labor opinion letter that, that talks about that. Uh, again, why this is so complicated because, you know, your first question was, what's the general rule of thumb? Well, for every general rule of thumb under wage and hour, there are 20 exceptions. Swallowing the up the general rule. Right. <laughs> so we just talked about two uh, sort of interesting components of it. If it's non-discretionary as a bonus, and if it's tied to your general job duties, the work you're performing, Correct. that'll tend to be the bonus that needs to be added into the calculation. Right. Right. And so commissions um, are, are separate but somewhat similar to bonuses. They're a little bit more complicated because at least for the most part when it comes to bonuses, you know the amount that the bonus either was or you know the bonus what the amount is going to be. When it comes to commissions, you have all kinds of complicated commission plans in and of themselves. Um, they're contingent on a whole lot of things, a customer, a client paying or not paying and having a clawback opportunity. So what, what should companies be thinking about when it comes to commissions and when commission amounts have to be included in this calculation of the regular rate of pay? Well, I, I think the general um, conception is the same. You take a look at the commission when it's paid. So when all of those events have occurred so that the um, employee is entitled to the commission, and then you divide it back over the number of weeks that it was earned. So for instance, if it takes three months from the time the employee meets the client until the sale is consummated and the amount is paid, you're going to then reallocate that commission over 12 weeks. It is the same concept. It gets a little bit more complicated when you, when you have to do the clawback. Um, and it, it's a little more complicated than I can go through, but there is a calculation for how you deal with, with the clawback issue. And I think, again, one of the best takeaways here is not necessarily for us to 
to mention and for listeners to remember verbatim what every rule is and what every exception is, I think the best takeaway probably is, as we started out by saying, it's not just about taking the hourly rate, multiplying that by, you know, one and a half times, and there's your overtime rate. At least now, hopefully, listeners and, and people uh, uh, at these companies are thinking to themselves, I've got to think a little bit more about this and analyze a little bit more into what goes into the calculation. Well, and that's why when we go in and do audits of, of payroll systems, we will oftentimes go in and audit it for a particular issue. And we'll say, oh, yeah, no, gee, that's fine. But you've got two other issues that the, you know, the company wasn't even aware of that, that are a problem. And those issues became, become painstakingly obvious if you ever get hit um, and we settle lawsuits a lot of times because, not because there's a violation that's actually alleged in the complaint, it's because when we turn over the payroll records to show that there's no violation as alleged in the complaint, the plaintiff's lawyer is going to find another violation, uh, which is going to be a problem and is obvious just from the payroll records itself. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and to that point also, and I mentioned this on the last episode, uh, the Department of Labor's new voluntary paid program uh, to try to promote uh, all these self-audits uh, that companies, you know, hopefully uh, can be doing, should be doing now. Are you seeing companies more interested in doing these self-audits before they hear from the plaintiff's lawyer or before the government comes knocking on the door? Well, you know, everything is on a pendulum and it swings. So a number of years ago, um, everybody was doing self-audits. I remember when the regulations changed in 2004, companies were on the, on the, um, on the white collar exemptions. You know, everybody was doing audits and they were getting their, you know, their house in order. And then when the Obama administration came in, the DOL said, look, we're not going to take your self-audit and, and actually deal with it. We're going to come in and do our own audit. And by the way, we're going to charge liquidated damages on top, which is a doubling of, of the back pay. Now we're seeing the pendulum swinging back where it seems to be that the Trump DOL is saying, you know what, if you want to self-audit, and, and you find this on your own, the problem, and you correct it, then, then we're going to support that and we're not going to come after you for liquidated damages. I mean, I think it's a very good thing, uh, and I think companies should be taking advantage of that. It's a matter of changing the mindset to, you know, right. in some respects. Companies are very reluctant to do things that they aren't forced to do just yet. Right. Um, and they're also a little afraid when, you know, the government is now involved telling you, well, this is voluntary and it's going to be for your own good and benefit. I think companies are still a little reluctant to believe that and it may take a little while to change that mindset. Well, but the difference here is that your choice is that um, you either fix it um, or you don't. And, and I know the concerns about dealing with the Department of Labor, a governmental agency, but the other concern is dealing with the plaintiff's bar is far more expensive because you know, they're not going to give up the liquidated damages and they're not going to give up their fees. That's true. So almost better to uh, nip this in the bud before right. all of those additional buckets of damages uh, you could be hit with. That's right. Absolutely. All right. So that was the first big wage and hour question, sort of figuring out um, the regular rate of pay to then determine what one's overtime rate is. A second issue, totally different, but still in the wage and hour world, um, that clients, I think, are just completely confused about. Mm -hmm. And frankly, so are a lot of lawyers and judges, for that matter. I want to get to the bottom of this concept of the fluctuating work week. We hear that term, we read about it, we're tweeting it, and so many people don't even know what the hell it is. So 
first tell us what is the fluctuating work week concept sure it, it again is another one of those um, you know confusing and misunderstood concepts the fluctuating work week concept allows the employer um, to pay um, non-exempt employees a, a fixed salary regardless of the number of hours worked and then be able to take a reduced overtime calculation overtime premium so it's a half time calculation rather than a time and a half so when you look at what the requirements are it, it becomes much clearer as, as to how this works so first of all you've got to promise them a fixed salary um, regardless of whether they work 60 hours in the week or they work 20 hours in the week. you got to pay them the same salary week in and week out. Hence the, t hence the term fluctuating. That's their right. hours, the point of this, their hours tend to be fluctuating from week to week. Correct. And you, the only thing you have to be careful about is that the salary has to be sufficient to cover um, minimum wage for all hours worked. So if they work at the higher end of the spectrum, you know, are they still making at least... Um, you know, minimum wage. And then, as you said, the hours have to fluctuate. But here's the, the clincher. There has to be a clear and mutual understanding between the employer and the employee that the salary is compensation apart from the overtime premium for, for all hours worked. And if that criteria is met, the overtime premium is a half-time premium rather than a time and a half. The employer also saves money because the regular rate decreases as the number of hours increase because you're taking that salary and dividing it over more hours than, than more just overtime. 40 right so you could be dividing this if someone's working 60 hours 70 hours the salary is being divided by 60 or 70 as opposed to just right. a 40 hour or a 35 hour That's work right. week so the so the overtime rate you know the regular rate is decreased so the overtime premium is decreased and again it's it's a half time rather than a time and a half um, but there's problems with it and there's a lot of litigation about the fluctuating work week and for some reason you know there are jurisdictions well first of all there are jurisdictions where this there's state law that precludes the use of the fluctuating work week so you do have to be careful about that well, does this tend is, is the reason why it's precluded in jurisdictions is it because they're afraid that it's going to be more harmful to the employee well I, I think I think it's not as advantageous to the employee. I think the more the employee works, the less they get paid. I mean, that's just the, the bottom line, the way it is. But there are advantages. And, you know, we talk about um, pros and cons of the fluctuating work week. And the, you know, the con to the employer is you've got to pay that salary regardless of how many hours that employee works. So if they take off for a half a day to go watch their kids' baseball game, they're still getting paid that same salary and you know it, it can lend itself to to abuses on the other hand for the employee it's a real pro because they get a fixed salary that they can rely on week in and week out if they have to take off for a couple of hours they're they're not going to get dinged um, and they do tend to the employees paid this way do tend to be more efficient because they realize that the more they work the less they're their overtime rates going to be so I'm not sure what the motivation is to um, you know to uh, make it um, you know outlaw it in certain jurisdictions but you do have to check the state laws which is also really a good point as you know this administration has been pulling back on regulations and um, 
the, the you know that that came up in the Obama administration, the states and and counties have stepped in oftentimes. So you you got to be careful because now there are certain um, regulations that are you know statewide, and if you're a national employer working in a number of jurisdictions, uh, you can't just assume you're in compliance with the federal law until you're in compliance. Yeah, and I say that all the time uh, to anyone who wants to listen. This used to be uh, an area employment law that it was just a federal right. practice. Um, now the states and local governments are, are uh, taking over really a, a lot of these issues. Um, so the, well, the, the one, yeah. yeah, one of the things I just wanted to say is whether you're paying on the fluctuating work week or there is another section that is really overlooked in it uh, of the regulations and it is a salaried non-exempt um, and it doesn't require the clear and mutual understanding which by the way doesn't have to be in writing but you know we always recommend that it be in writing whoa 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 so wait a second so let me get this straight salary non-exempt mm -hmm. most companies out there and I still hear this from everybody they view this world of exemptions as either you are on an hourly you're paid by uh, the hourly rate in which case you are non-exempt or if you are salary that means you are exempt are you breaking news here that you can be paid a salary and still be non-exempt well, I may be breaking news, but I am not creating any new law here. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it's it. It's always been that way. You know, remember, for the exemptions, at least for the white-collar exemptions, um, which, uh, you know, the listeners may or may not know is the executive administrative outside sales um, and the professional, and the professional exemption. exemption. Um, the, there are three requirements to that exemption, not just one. It's not just that you're paid on a salary. Um, you know, two of the requirements involve the salary. One, this is salary level. It has to be, you know, high enough to meet the salary level, um, which was part of what the Department of Labor tried to change before it was enjoined to, to move it from uh, 23,360 to 47,47,6. Um, and you've also got the salary basis, which means the employee is paid week in and week out, um, regardless of the quantity or quality of work. And then you've got the third, which is the duties test. And all three have to be met. You, there, you can pay an employee uh, a salary and still have them non-exempt. And what you have to have is something that tells the employee that in that situation, the salary covers all hours worked. Because if you think about it, you've now paid, <coughs> excuse me, the regular rate <coughs> for the, the all the hours worked. What you haven't paid is the, only the overtime premium. The overtime premium is a half time. The only reason it goes to one and a half is because where the employees haven't been paid anything for those overtime hours worked. So you still have to meet these stringent requirements. You can't, I mean, just to be clear, you can't be a company. Certainly it can't be after the fact. Very rarely, if ever, can you use it as a litigation argument, although there may be exceptions to that because of this mutual understanding concept, which throws a little bit of a wrinkle in it. Um, but but the, the point is, is that you can't just willy-nilly every week and every month change what right. you believe you're doing. I'm paying based on a fluctuating work week. I'm not paying based on a fluctuating work week. The, yeah. It's not the, that simple. That's right. And and one of the things that I, I always recommend is you put it in your offer letters, you put it in your handbooks, um, and you put it anywhere so that um, that you communicate with, with regard to pay issues. And the other thing to just be careful about, um, and I see this a lot, is 
especially when you've got an outside vendor doing your payroll. Oftentimes for salaried employees, the vendor under the hours column will just put 40. And it's a placeholder. Um, and the courts will look at that and say, well, wait a minute, hours 40? First of all, they're not fluctuating because it's always 40. Um, and second of all, um, there's no understanding that that salary is going to pay for all hours worked. And I'm not sure why they can't just put an S or some other an asterisk, something else besides 40 in that column. But oftentimes you can look at the, um, at the, the number of hours. If they fluctuate and the salary is the same, the court will look at that and say, well, that was a mutual understanding because they never complained about it and they accepted the, the salary. So um, those are a couple of different documents that you can use, but I always think it's much better to just put it in the offer letter or a memo than have the employee sign off on it. And assuming it can be used, the fluctuating work week method of compensation isn't limited to a certain kind of industry or company that applies across the board? Uh, it pretty much applies across the board and, and you know, there is law that says that you don't have to fluctuate in the number of hours of overtime, you just have to fluctuate in the number of hours worked. And it doesn't even have to be a great fluctuation. I mean, it can be a small fluctuation. And, and I think anybody whose salary, you know, doesn't always work the same number of hours every week. I think you do have to be careful. If somebody comes in at 9 and leaves at 5 and takes a half hour for lunch every day, it's going to be more of a problem. Yeah, and, and just to be clear also, when we're talking about uh, salary versus hourly, um, if you are paid by uh, on an hourly rate, uh, you can't be exempt because there has to be the salary basis test. Correct. However, if you are paid by salary, you could be either exempt or non-exempt, depending on then if you meet the job duties test. Correct. So it's important, uh, and, and oftentimes it's a matter of, a little more than semantics, but it's a matter of the lingo um, used by companies. Instead of referring to their employees as, e as either salary or hourly, um, they really should try to keep more to exempt, non-exempt, because salary could be either. That's absolutely correct. And it also, I, I've seen it used in, in, in how benefits are, are provided. And unless it really is truly salaried versus hourly, um, you got to be careful about that as well. So if a company is interested and able to do the fluctuating work week method of compensation, obviously there are some strict elements that have to be uh, shown and demonstrated for that to be uh, found to be valid. And, and assuming that they um, meet that criteria and assuming that the fluctuating work week method is sanctioned in the company's particular jurisdiction, do you think overall it's a good tool for employers? I think it's a great tool for employers. I think it, first of all, it does two things. I think it brings down your labor costs and I think it gives employers the ability to budget better because when you're paying a fixed salary for all of the hours worked and then your overtime calculation is a half-time calculation, you're much better able to anticipate you know what those budgets are going to be rather than um, paying an hourly rate for you know 40 hours and then time and a half for hours over 40. So it's a potentially great tool uh, for companies to think about but if they're going to do it they need to make sure they're doing it right and that they're able to do it in their particular jurisdiction. Correct. All right, so that was question number two, big wage and hour question number two, this fluctuating work week concept. And before I move to number three, we've been talking so much about overtime and the white collar exemptions. Are we ever going to get any resolution 
to whether the Obama administration exemptions um, or the new salary test, I should say, uh, is going to come to pass. Are we going to be meeting somewhere in the middle? Are we going to be hearing anything further uh, from this Department of Labor um, on the issue of overtime exemptions, either salary test or job duties, any time in our lifetime? Well, I'd like to say it will be any time in our lifetime, but, you know, first things first, we've got to get, uh, or, or the administration has to get the Department of Labor or the positions filled before they can really address it. Minor detail. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. We, You know, there's still no wage and hour administrator um, that's been confirmed. So um, I, I think that's one of the things that, that, will be, that will be dealt with, but, you know, like I said, first things first, uh, we've got some confirmations to go through before that will ever get done. And so while everybody is asked the questions of trying to read the tea leaves, assuming we are going to have some further action on this issue, everyone is, is asking everyone else, what are we likely to see? You're having some people say we're, we're probably going to just have some change when it comes to the salary threshold. It'll probably be somewhere in between the old and the Obama proposal. There are some people who are saying, well, they may go uh, even more uh, out on a limb and, and start tweaking the job duties tests. You have any sense of what you think is likely going to happen? I only know what's been leaked, um, and it looks like Are you breaking news here too. <laughs> no, it's been it leaked by other people. I, I'd rather you say this is the first time anyone's <laughs> going to hear this. No, I wish that were the case, but no. Uh, I mean, it sounds like that the the salary level is is what's going to get tweaked. It's not going to be as high um, as as what the Obama administration did, and and I think there is some hope from the employer side that they're going to take out the um, escalation clause so that um, you know it'll be one jump and 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 stop but um, you know I have to tell you from an employer standpoint I know that everybody was up in arms but I have to tell you the from from my point of view to give an employer an absolute bright line rule um, at, at a higher number I, I think gave a sense of security um, that you know you were in compliance because there, I, you know, we were doing a, a number of audits under the new uh, salary level, and and I have to tell you there were far less positions that were in that gray area once you raised the salary to almost fifty thousand um, dollars, and I think it would have decreased litigation, but you know, it didn't go through. Yeah, we will see. We will see. So, I want to get to my third. Um, issue of the three for this episode at least and this one's making a lot of news lately as well tip pooling and the uh, Department of Labor's attempt to change current yep. tipping practices so um, I never like to assume that people who are listening to this oh, yeah. are so well versed in what these terms mean we yep. talked about regular rate of pay and and defined that you know tried to to um, take out the legalese there we talked about fluctuating work week and what that meant when we're talking about tip pooling mm -hmm. what is a tip pool well, it, and, and you know, this issue has been on such a roller coaster ride. Um, but but let's, I, I think, start before the tip pool. Let's start. So why don't you just ask your own questions then, if you're okay. not going to answer my first one. <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the tip credit, so that everybody understands where where this is all coming from. What well, what happens is where you have employees who are customarily and regularly tipped. What what the tip credit allows the employer to do is pay the employee a sub-minimum wage. So if the minimum wage federally is $7.25, you can pay less than that, and then you can take a use the tips to um, 
to clear the delta between what the direct wage is and, and the 725. So, so we start there. And, and the real issue has come up with, it, you know, if the employer is taking the tip credit, what do they have to follow? And there are very specific rules that say, look, if your employee is tipped, the tips belong to them. And they don't have to share it with anybody. The exception to that is a tip pool. And it allows the employees to share tips amongst other employees who are customarily and regularly tipped. So you've got, you know, wait staff sharing tips with the busing staff or maybe the hostesses or maybe the bartenders. And the issue is that they're sharing tips with people who wouldn't normally get tips from the customers. Like somebody in the kitchen or something. Well, Is that what you're saying? Th that's right. They can't share. And, and that's an interesting, uh, I always found it to be an interesting dichotomy and somewhat of a fallacy. I don't know how many of you have ever been out to dinner and tipped your busboy directly, right? I know I never have, but yet that position is one that the Department of Labor has said is customarily and regularly tipped. Um, other than Joe Stonecrab in Miami, I've never <laughs> tipped a hostess. <laughs> I, you know, but that they're in that position as well. But so, so I like to think of it to clarify is you know the front of the house versus the back of the house. The front of the house is the wait staff and the. You know, the, people the, who are having some interaction with right. the customers, even if they wouldn't normally get tips, that's they're right. having some FaceTime, some interaction, right. as opposed to the sous chef, which won't ever see, who won't or ever see, or the dishwasher, or the you're dishwasher, never see the dishwasher, right? Um, or you're never going to see the maintenance person, right. or the person who cleans up, uh, and those are the people that are not permitted to participate in the um, in the tip pool. And and the biggest no no is you can't require employees who are customarily and regularly tipped to share tips with management or supervisors and so there's a lot of litigation about whether a supervisor is actually a manager you know and that type of thing it's so. important to note also again that there are all kinds of state and local rules on this right. issue too we're talking for the moment about the federal side of things and what the federal rule is conceptually well that's exactly that's exactly right because there are you know the, it's interesting the the federal rule um, says you can take a tip credit of up to 50% um, of, of what the wage was in 1996 or something like that and a lot of states have increased that and said you can't take that much of a you know of a tip credit um, but the issue arose because there were employers who had tipped employees who did not take a tip credit in other words they were paying 725 or more an hour and the Department of Labor under the Obama administration in 2011 took the position, look, employer, I don't care whether you take a tip credit or not, you can't touch those tips. You can't deal with them. You can't take them, you can't confiscate them, you can't make them share them, you can't do anything with them. And that issue went through the court system and, and there was actually sort of a split of authority as to whether the Department of Labor actually had any authority over the tips where the employer didn't take the tip credit. And so again, before Obama, the rationale was, well, you don't, as an employer, you don't get to benefit both ways. You don't get to have it both ways. You don't get to take a tip credit right. and then also be able to have some control over the tips that these people are getting. Right. Um, because they're supposed to be, the whole point of you taking a tip credit and paying them a reduced hourly wage is because they're supposedly making it up, if not more, from the tips that they get. 
That's right. The issue, as you just said, then became, well, what about, all right, we as a company, we're not going to take a tip credit. So that rationale doesn't apply anymore, but here's the Obama administration, DOL, coming in and saying, well, even in those situations, you still can't assert any control over well, the tip. Well, that's right. And when you think about it, the Fair Labor Standards Act affects minimum wage over time, amongst other things. But if you're paying minimum wage and you're paying over time, then there is no You're in compliance with the law. Compliance. Right, exactly. So this was winding its way through the, the court system. So in comes the Trump administration's DOL, and they rescinded the, the, um, that, the Obama regulation and said, look, if you are not taking a tip credit, hands off, DOL. You can do whatever employer, do whatever you want. Um, and then, and this is, you know, late breaking news, um, <laughs> President Trump signed the Consolidated um, Appropriations Act on March 23rd. And in there, they... Um, of this year, 2018. 2018. Um, they slid in a provision that actually amends the Fair Labor Standards Act as it as it deals with with tips and the amendment um, to the statute says that the employer may not keep um, it, it, tips received by employees for any purpose regardless of whether or not the employer takes a tip credit so now whether or not you take a tip credit the tips belong to the employees but here's the change if you're paying minimum wage or more you can then have the employees share the tips with non-tipped employees, such as the dishwashers and you know the cooks, um, which really helps um, sort of bridge that gap in the pay that that the front of the house was making so much more than the back of the house because of because of the tips. So to be clear, uh, in the situations where you're not taking the tip credit, you still are not allowed to assert any control over the tips. But we've expanded the number of people with whom you can require the tipped employee to share those tips. Right. Exactly. I exactly. And that amends the statute, which means that um, that's the law. So it's regardless of what the Department of Labor does in terms of regulations, that is now the law. Think there's going to be any uh, fights uh, over that? Is Department of Labor going to try to... Uh to assert its wow. position? I, it's going to be difficult because you're now dealing with a statute. And, right. the, you know, it, their, their job is to interpret the statute and, have reg and, and issue regulations that implement the statute. So you, you can't really go against the statute. Yeah, it's not like the, sta <laughs> it's not like the statute is silent on the issue That's and right. the Department of Labor is trying to come in and assert its position. Right. You now have a statute which speaks directly to the right. issue. The Department of Labor can't run contrary to that. That's right. And this was clearly a compromise of the two positions. So an interesting side story to this whole uh, tipping concept. There's been this wave uh, uh, in some restaurants and, and some in the hospitality industry, particularly places like uh, here in New York City, that are doing away with tipping altogether. Mm -hmm. What have you been hearing about that, if anything? And do you think that trend is going to continue, this sort of let's get away from tipping? Well, as a defense attorney, I like the trend. I, I think it will decrease the amount of, of litigation, um, and it does make sense. But, um, it, you know, there is a, another aspect where, where they're taking, oh, doing away with tipping, um, where the restaurants and, and, and other um, service industries are adding a service charge. There's a big difference between a service charge and a tip. 
Service charge is mandatory. Tip is voluntary. That um, line gets blurred a lot. Oh, and there's been a lot yeah. of litigation on that. Oh yeah. And the interesting thing is that the tips do not become part of the regular rate unless you're taking a tip credit. Um, and then it's only between the direct wage and, and, and minimum wage. Service charges that are then distributed to employees absolutely go into the regular rate. And so it also increases the overtime rate. Um, so this, I think, um, with regard to the service charges, is very attractive to the employer because the employer can keep the service charge. They can distribute as much of it as they want. They can keep as much of it as they want. They can distribute it to anybody they want to distribute it to. Um, and they can do with it, you know, what, what they please. Um, and the other thing, the other interesting thing, which is sort of way beyond um, today, is that it, if you're in the retail service industry, like most hospitality um, and restaurants are, um, there's another exemption that you can take under what's called 7i um, if you're using um, and distributing service charges to the, you know, to the employees. Um, so, and that's a way to avoid, uh, you know, paying overtime to service employees. And I love that we've come full circle uh, from the uh, third question all the way back to regular rate of pay and an overtime rate uh, where we started yeah. this this whole episode. Well, this, this has been uh, this has been great. Um, hopefully, we have answered or, or attempted to answer three real big questions out there in the wage and hour front. Um, we're definitely going to have to take this up some more in future episodes and talk about some other big lingering questions in the wage and hour world. Uh, I think a couple of big takeaways that I have from this is one, um, with all of these issues, there are certainly strategies that companies can, uh, you know, look to uh, to make that makes sense for their particular company, their particular workforce, and, you know, what tends to arise most in their industry. And uh, you certainly have rules, but by industry to industry and within different companies in the same industry, you might want to implore some, some kind of different strategies. Um, and secondly, with that said, be careful what you're doing, because I think it's fair to say that wage and hour may be the closest thing to strict liability that we have when it comes to employment law relative to, as we said before, discrimination, harassment, and some of these other issues. The one last thing I want to say is when you talk about industry, um, I hear this a lot that, you know, it's the way everybody does it in the industry. And I'm just, I can't emphasize enough that is, that is not a defense. Period. End of story. Yeah. Well, that uh, that about covers it for today. Um, Susan, I can't tell you how happy I am that you joined us for this episode, and uh, hopefully you will come back because you enjoyed this so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much, Susan. Well, I hope that gave you a little bit of clarity on at least those three questions. I've got lots of great questions, not only in the wage and hour world, but in other employment law areas that I've been hearing about uh, from clients, people who uh, asked me to address them on the podcast, and I'm going to continue to do that. I've also got lots of big labor and employment cases, lots of trends that I want to get to, uh, and there's time for that. We can't do it all in one day. So until the next time, thank you so much for listening as always, and I hope all of your labor is productive.